0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, Antioch. My name's Evan. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I really am excited to share with you all this morning uh, to speak on behalf of God's Word. But before we jump into that, I just want to take a quick moment and echo the appreciation of teachers. Um, My wife is a Spanish middle school teacher, and so I don't quite have a firsthand look, but I have a pretty intimate look at the reality of teachers, and you all are saints, like already Saints. Um, I don't know how you do it, but I'm so grateful um, of your incredibly generous love uh, towards the children of our schools. Um, it's incredible work, and we appreciate it. So thank you. Um, before we jump in this morning, just a, a quick reminder uh, of where we're at. Uh, for the last several months, myself, Nathan, Amy, Jarrell, and Linda have been working together uh, collaboratively through this book of Ruth. And for me, a bit about me, I'm a verbal processor. And so that means I don't really know what I think until I speak it a lot of times. And so the reality is that they've been so patient with me. And this sermon is basically uh, the product of their willingness to listen to me, talk um, so you can say thank you to them uh, for their willingness and their grace and their patience, but in all honesty, it's really been a joy uh, to work together um, and to collaborate on, uh, on this journey. And for the next four weeks, that's where we're going to be, uh, continuing through this uh, book of Ruth, uh, the four chapters. And last week, Nathan kicked us off by helping us really understand the tone that this story would have uh, taken to the ears of the original readers. And he did that by Establishing three provocative elements The period that this story is placed in The place this story originates And finally the people uh, who make up the characters of this story And so first, the period, the days when the judges ruled Nathan helped us understand that this period in Israel's history was incredibly brutal and violent and marked with uh, a series of rebellious, sinful seasons Uh, That would have brought about serious feelings and emotions of anger, of remorse, of frustration, uh, of even fear. uh, Just at the very mention of this season, the days when the judges ruled. And then second uh, provocative element was the place, Moab. Which was ground zero for this rebellious history, this rebellious season. Moab was known as enemy territory. It was a violent and hostile foreign land for the people of Israel. And then finally the names of the people that make up this story are actually incredibly provocative. And he started off by helping us understand Elimelech, whose name translated means, my God is king. And at the end of last week, we came to realize that, in fact, Elimelech believed that he himself was king of his own life. And unfortunately, that resulted in a a premature death for him. Uh, The second Names that we come across are Malon and Kilion, uh, which are the sons of Elimelech, and their names mean sickly and death, and they die pretty quickly. (laughs) And then finally, Naomi, whose name means pleasant and sweet. Now the ironic fate of Naomi's name this morning will be revealed as she transforms from a woman who is defined as being pleasant and sweet into the kind of woman who changes her name, her very identity into Mara, which as we heard Madel read, means I am bitterness. And so this morning, this is where we pick up the story, the story of Naomi, a widow, a childless mother, a vulnerable immigrant in a hostile foreign land. She's been displaced from her home in Bethlehem, not by her own will, but by that of her husband, Elimelech, who in the face of famine in Bethlehem decided to pick up his family, his wife and two sons, and move them to Moab, this enemy territory. And understanding that this was a patriarchal culture it would be safe to speculate that this probably was a decision that Naomi had little to no influence in. Her voice was probably not heard in this decision. This was Elimelech's call, and so she's been displaced from her home against her will. She's also facing, facing death and despair of, of unprecedented proportions. They get to the land, and first her husband dies. And in a culture where men are the sole providers of the home and of the security and of the income, the reality is that with Elimelech's death also came the death of Naomi's current hope. Her current reality is gone. And then quickly following are the deaths of their sons, Melon and Kilion, which again being men, their responsibility would have been to take care of the parents. As they age. And so, with their deaths, also comes Naomi's death of her future hope, her future reality. And so, this is a woman that is absolutely haunted by the reality of death and facing depths of despair that we almost can't even imagine. She is a single, impoverished immigrant woman in enemy territory. This is an absolutely brutal reality so the emotion that this story is already evoking within us for me i can't help but feel this is complete and utter despair this is a hopeless scenario there is no future no path forward for naomi Everything in her life that brought her joy, that brought her comfort, that brought her a sense of security has been absolutely ripped from her hands. Everything in her life that would have contributed to her sense of identity, her sense of purpose and belonging and meaning in the world has been stripped from her life. Bethlehem, her home, the sense of communal identity Elimelech, her husband, the source of her identity as a wife. And her sons, Malon and Kilion, the source of her identity as a mother. I have to imagine that we can feel the weight of her reality in this moment. And in the few short opening lines, this was just the first five verses, we literally witnessed the emotional and psychological death of the person of Naomi. It's no wonder that in the end she views herself with a completely different identity. Naomi has died. And to make matters worse, or for us, what might feel like a bit of a kind of a comedic moment, is that the only people she has left, the only people who might offer a sense of hope or purpose or belonging are her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. For me, when I read this, it, the, I don't know why, because I don't even watch the show, but the show Survivor popped into my head. And I'm like, Survivor, mother-in-law edition, right? Stranded on a desert island with your two foreign daughters-in-law. I had to laugh, <laughs> just going, are you kidding me? But the reality is, is that Orpah and Ruth are Moabite women. And as Nathan helped us understand last week, the reality is is that their reputation would have been clearly known to all of Israel. As we read in Numbers 25, the Moabite women were known for a reputation of being sexually promiscuous, of of constantly and intentionally trying to seduce and invite the men of Israel into sacrificial worship and rebellious sin in the land of Moab. Needless to say, This probably wasn't Naomi's first choice for her sons in marriage, Ruth and Orpah. And so the picture that that paints, I believe, is is that we are entering into the story of Naomi. The story of a woman who has suffered the consequences of decisions, not her own the results of which have been immense pain, tragic loss, and an absolutely hopeless future. My heart is breaking for Naomi in this moment. And I can't help but believe that her bitterness is actually completely justified. Father, as we come to this story this morning, this story of tragic loss and bitterness and pain and displacement, our hope is that you would help us to be fully present in this moment, to hear from your word this morning. Eliminate the distractions, calm our minds, focus our hearts, allow us to be here with you, to hear from you and to respond. So where does Naomi go from here? Verse six, we read this. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. This is a crucial moment in the story because it's one of actually only two places in the entire book of Ruth where God's hand is described as directly intervening in the story. And in this moment, we see that God intervenes by ending a famine in Bethlehem. He's responded to the cry of his people. And so the author is trying to tell us here that this God of Israel is a merciful God who hears and responds to the cry of his people. And Naomi responds to this merciful act of God by immediately packing up and preparing to return home to Bethlehem. And I think that is a key observation there that she says she's returning home from the land that she had been living. She never considered Moab home. Bethlehem is her home and so she is returning. And this is, this is a huge moment because that act of return or go back or go where you came from, this is a, a biblical picture of the act of Repentance. She's returning back to the land that she left, to the people she had abandoned, to the God that she had disowned, right? So this is a journey toward the merciful provision of God, but this is also a journey of repentance. And in that moment, I go, wait a minute, what what does Naomi have to repent for? This decision was not her own. Elimelech is the one who moved the family to Bethlehem. The reality is that in this moment, Naomi is preparing to walk a journey of repentance for the sins of her husband. Have you ever suffered the consequences of another person's sin? A wayward child? An unfaithful spouse? Deceitful friend, maybe? Maybe a manipulative boss? Have you ever felt that feeling of responsibility to have to repent on the behalf of another person? What does that feel like? For me, it immediately conjures up a sense of, this is not right, this is unjust, unfair, and I am bitter. And not just toward the person whose sins I'm repenting of, but for the God who would even allow this to happen. Now, I would never dream of trying to imagine the depths of Naomi's despair in this moment. Thankfully, my family is well, my wife is well, and my life has not been suffering to this level of magnitude. So I don't claim to know exactly what Naomi's feeling here, but in this moment, I do know what it's like to be separated by both distance and time separated from a community who knows me that I'm participating in, from a family who loves me, from a God who has been faithful to me. I've lived seasons of rebellion and sin and I've turned my back on the relationships that cared for me and I've burned bridges and I've rejected all who would pursue me. And I've also faced that moment that broken, desperate moment of realizing, man, I just wanna go home. I just wanna repent. I know what that feels like. And so I have to imagine that in this moment, uh, Naomi is picturing herself returning to Bethlehem, her home, to the community who, who has known her who has watched her enter into relationship with Elimelech and maybe witnessed the birth of her sons. And she's also returning to the promised land, the land of the God that she has disowned. And so when I try to imagine that and I imagine my own journey of repentance, the words that come to mind that help shape and frame those emotions are words like embarrassment and shame and rejection. I'm so thankful that I was received with love and grace. But I have to imagine that in this moment, this is some of Naomi's experience, some of what she's feeling. And so with this in mind, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth prepare to set out on this journey to Bethlehem. Now I'm curious, has anyone ever walked the road from Moab to Bethlehem? Anyone? (laughs) This was about 40 miles or so through a brutal desert, sheer wilderness. For some of us, that's like absolutely unimaginable, right? Like not my cup of tea. For some of you people that are like major adventure sports people, you're like, yeah, sign me up for that, right? But remember, this is three women traveling on foot 40 miles, two river crossings in the middle of it. And all the while they're traveling through a land with a reputation for incredible violence. Can you imagine what they're facing in this moment? And here's the really, really amazing thing is that in this moment, Naomi decides to actually take it up a notch. She goes, let's let's raise the stakes here a little bit. So in verses eight and nine, we read this. Here's here's what she says to Ruth and Orpah in this moment. They've set out on the road to Bethlehem and she stops and she turns to them and she says, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband On the surface, this looks like a blessing, like an act of kindness from Naomi. She is extending them a kindness. But in actuality, I think if we dig a little bit, we see that beneath the surface, what this is, is actually Naomi's attempt to divorce herself from Ruth and Orpah. She's admitting her own frailty, her own weakness, her own hopelessness, and she's handing them over into God's care. She's saying, I can't take care of you anymore. I have nothing left to give. And the only hope for you here is in God's provision and God's care. There's nothing left for me. Notice that she doesn't ask a blessing upon her own life in that moment. She's accepted her fate. She's giving in to despair. And this blessing of hope offered by a hopeless woman is an absolute key part to this story because it speaks to the, to the depths of what's happening right here. You see, this blessing that she offers to Orpah and Ruth is not just any blessing. This isn't just wishing them well on their journey back home. This is hesed. It's the Hebrew word for what we would consider an incredibly extreme act of kindness and love that is absolutely crucial in that moment, and so Hesed has, has said is described as this: first, it's absolutely essential to the survival of the recipient. Without this blessing, this act of loving kindness, the person dies. Second, this act of has said is committed in the context of an intimate relationship. So, handing a twenty-dollar bill to the person standing on the corner is a, is a kind act. It's something that we should all, at the very least, consider. But it's probably not going to be essential to that person's survival, and we probably don't know the person's name. And so while this is a good and kind act, this would not be considered said. And likewise, sponsoring a child in a foreign country, in, in maybe a developing part of the world where this is literally the, the money they need to survive. Incredible act of generosity and kindness. But lacks the intimate relationship that would mark it as Hesed. So, something good and something we should do and participate in. This is the work of the kingdom of God, but not Hesed. Hesed is an extreme act of life preserving love for a close friend or family member. So Naomi's blessing we see is an attempt to divorce herself from Ruth and Orpah and also to hand them over to God's Hesed. And at first they actually refuse to let it happen. Notice what they say. They wept and declared, we will go back with you to your people. They're saying, no, 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 no. We're not gonna bail on you. We're in this and we're gonna go back with you to your people. There's evidence of love and relationship and intimacy Orpah and Ruth are committed, but then Naomi doubles down and she taps into a a method of persuasion that I believe is even more powerful. She taps into their imaginations. Listen to what she says here. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What an incredibly logical argument, right? Like she literally just walks them through. If I get pregnant tonight, if I meet a husband and then give birth to two healthy sons, that nine-month process, are you really going to then wait around for an additional 15 years plus for them to come of age to marry? I feel like Ruth and Orp in that moment would be kind of like, yeah, point taken. I get it. I'll return home to the land. But I think, again, if we look a little bit deeper here, I think Ruth is actually helping them to imagine the depths of her own hopelessness. Look at the language she uses to describe here. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Return home, my daughters. I am too old. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband, it is more bitter for me. The Lord's hand is turned against me. What looks like at first kind of just a self-centered rant. Like, come on, Naomi, the world's not just about you. There's other people in the world. I actually think this is an absolutely beautiful moment and, and, and something that is worth lingering with. This is a desperate cry of pain born from a life that has been fraught with intense suffering and intense pain. And she's crying out in this moment to Ruth and Naomi, people, women who know her intimately, who have been with her through decades of life. Naomi is bringing the reality of her past from the deepest depths of her soul into this present reality, this present moment. She brings the darkest thoughts from the recesses of her mind into the light of day. She makes them known through speech. What was unknown has become known. This is a cry of lament. Now, this week, as I was preparing, I, was, I, I love reading through poetry. And so in the morning, I was reading through some poetry. That might sound weird, but I like poetry. Um, and I came across this poem that I think really captures uh, the, the sense of desperation and the sense of isolation uh, that Naomi is exuding here. And I'd love to read it for you guys this morning. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Anybody know the author of the poem? This is Psalm 88. This is scripture. What looks like kind of a self-centered cry of despair is actually an authentic expression of the historical tradition of Christian faith. This is, is actually a biblical lament that is faithful to the tradition and invites us into the very presence of God. This psalm has been crafted for this moment. How many of us grew up in a church culture where biblical lament was not, not even recognized or tolerated? How many of us grew up in a, in a Christian culture where the expectation was the happy, cheerful, life is good, kind of running soundtrack. Anyone? In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul encourages the believing church to be informed and to be acutely aware of the reality of death and despair in their midst. To be incredibly aware and informed about the reality of death and despair in their midst. Why? So that they could grieve, so that they could lament, so that they could name what is broken in their midst, and so that they could then hope in the mercy of a God who has been shown faithful because he showed up in the world in the person of Jesus and conquered death and despair. A mark of the Christian faith is the ability to lament to grieve with hope. And so Naomi names what is broken. She says, I have no husband, no sons, no home, no hope. Biblical lament gives us permission to emote, to openly express our feelings and our emotions in response to the brokenness of the present world. Naomi then questions her current reality and says, even if I had a husband, even if I had sons, even if I had hope, and in doing so she is able to imagine a new reality and then here's the kicker for me is that in that moment she then turns and she blames god she says the lord's hand has turned against me this is god's fault biblical lament dares god to reveal himself in the midst of our brokenness and i have to ask is that really true Is that really what we're supposed to do with our pain and our anguish and our brokenness and our bitterness is to blame God? I actually think that it is. I think that in this moment, Naomi is actually faithfully expressing biblical lament. She's bringing the full weight and expression of her grief and her pain and her frustration, and she's bringing it to bear on the shoulders of the Lord. I believe this is actually Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Why? Why does Jesus invite this? It's because he can take it. It's because he actually wants to take it. As a father who who loves his children, in that moment of pain and anguish and suffering, when, when they're experiencing any kind of pain, the desperate longing of my heart is run to me. Run to me. Emma, Wyatt, run to me. Why? So that I can comfort you, so that I can hold you, so that I can remind you of who you are and that you are loved. And I'm with you in this. I feel your pain. We lament because God is already there with us. He is present in the midst of the pain, desperately wanting to wrap us in his arms and to remind us of his faithful and loving presence. Naomi finishes her lament and again they wept. And then Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and she turns and goes. A lot of people try to compare and contrast right here, Orpah and Ruth's decisions. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and leaves. Ruth chooses to stay and cling. Orpah's wrong, Ruth is right. I disagree. I think Orpah actually makes the logical decision in this moment. The road ahead is heavy and burdened and dangerous and vulnerable. And on top of that, Naomi has straight up rejected her. She says, no, go back to your own people. I can't take care of you. I think Orpah is making the logical decision and I think Orpah is actually making the decision that we would make in this moment. Which stands at a stark contrast because it makes Ruth's decision to cling in this moment so absolutely amazing. You see, the language that she uses in response, is intense. Verses 15 through 17, here's how it goes down. It says, "'Look,' said Naomi, "'your sister-in-law is going back to her people "'and to her gods. "'Go back with her.' "'But Ruth replied,' Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This language is intense. It's extreme. Her decision is clearly illogical. This is not the right thing to do in this moment. It's extremely dangerous and It's absolutely necessary for Naomi's survival. Ruth is the last hope. Everyone else is gone. And it's in this moment that Ruth enters into a covenant promise that covers not just her life and not just her death, but even her burial. She has committed herself to Naomi. In this moment, Ruth sacrifices her own life for Naomi's life. Who does this look like? This looks like Jesus. Jesus who sacrificed his life so that we might have life. Jesus who unites himself to us in a covenant promise that covers life, death, and resurrection. Jesus who is faithfully present in the midst of our broken realities. Ruth in this moment is the full embodiment of the sacrificial covenantal, faithful love of Jesus, and it's beautiful. This is the moment in the story that our hearts have been longing for. This is the moment that all of the death and the despair and the tragedy, it's building to this moment. And in this moment we see Ruth as the beacon of hope for Naomi. Here's what's amazing. It's also incredibly ironic. Earlier in the story, Naomi turns to Ruth and Orpah and, it, and attempts to extend Hesed to them. Attempts to give them over into God's loving care. And instead, what we see in this moment is that through Ruth, God offers Naomi Hasid, And in doing so, offers Naomi a new hope, a new future, and a new life. Through Ruth, God is extending Hesed, his faithful, loving kindness to Naomi. Hope is breaking into the story. The momentum is shifting from despair and tragedy and death to one of hope and looking toward the horizon to what's coming. But here's what I love about great art, right? That's what Nathan described the book of Ruth as last week is going, This is a beautiful work of art. And with art, we don't just glance at it, we linger we sit with it and we allow it to actually soak into and saturate our souls. And so in this moment, as we linger, here's what I see. In Ruth's covenant promise to Naomi, she says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The commitment goes beyond Ruth's own death. It goes to her burial. She's going to be buried in this land with these people. Ruth has known Naomi for over a decade and has been with her through tragedy and loss and despair and ups and downs and everything in between. And yet it is in this moment that Ruth makes a covenant promise, a commitment of faith to the God who is willing and able to receive the honest and bitter lament of Naomi. This is Ruth's conversion story, people. This is the moment that she chooses to place her faith in the God of Israel, Naomi's vulnerable and faithful lament become Ruth's moment of salvation. Which begs me to ask, how do we engage the broken and desperate moments of our lives? Do we allow ourselves to feel it? To feel the full weight of the pain? Or do we choose to numb from it? Are we willing to stand in and to suffer in and endure or do we choose distraction? Do we invite anyone to witness our bitterness, to hear our lament, to watch us turn in the midst of our pain and agony to a God we believe will hear and respond to our cry? Do we lament? So what happens to Naomi? Ruth declares her covenant promise. She sacrifices her own life. She extends has said. Is Naomi's hope restored? Is this the moment where Naomi finally snaps out of it and goes, man, there's hope. We got this. We got a path forward. Does she have a new lease on life? Ironically, this is actually the moment where Naomi clings to her own bitterness and despair. She refuses to be comforted. In fact, the text says Naomi stopped urging her, which a better translation is Naomi stopped talking to her for the rest of the journey. She gave her the silent treatment. Listen to what she says upon arriving in Bethlehem. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi has been physically reconciled to her home, to her people and to her God, and yet she remains spiritually and emotionally hardened. The tangible presence of God's faithfulness, his his said, hasn't alleviated Naomi's bitterness. It hasn't healed the wound. It hasn't really changed her circumstances. At least not yet. Which tells us that while God's presence is faithful, in the desperate and broken moments of life, it is still upon us to recognize and receive it. So this morning, the question for me is, as we encounter this story of brutal tragedy and death and despair, and then it shifts gears into hope and all of the emotion that 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 evokes from within us, that is a response. That is our hearts being drawn towards something. That is our hearts longing for the good news of this story. And so my question this morning is how will we respond to the reality of Naomi's bitterness and Ruth's faithfulness? Will we be like Naomi and remain hardened, refusing to recognize and receive the faithful presence of God? As we come to the table this morning for communion, to meet with God, as we respond and are invited to worship and pray, These are the questions that I want us to contemplate. For some of us this morning, the response might be reminiscent of Naomi's story. You're in a season of bitterness. You've experienced despair and tragedy and death. And if that's you this morning, if that is where you're at, then the response this morning is lament. Name it. Name the brokenness in your life and question let God paint a new reality, a new picture. And he's ready and willing to take the blame because it pulls you into his arms. For some of us, the response this morning might be more reminiscent of Ruth, an overwhelming desire in the face of a faithful God to confess and to confess Jesus as Lord and to receive God's has said this morning. For others, for those of us who have received God's Hesed already, the invitation is to participation, is to continue to be like Ruth, conduits through which God is extending his Hased. For me, I can't help but think it reminds me of the foster families in our midst who are literally sacrificing their lives for the sake of these children, who are giving themselves, giving their families and their homes and their tables, Extreme acts of loving kindness and faithfulness to ensure the survival and future hope of these kids. This is the beautiful work and the beautiful picture of God's Hesed to his people through us. So our invitation this morning is those who have received the chesed of Jesus is to become ambassadors of Hesed. To extend loving kindness to a broken world in desperate need of hope. I'd invite you to stand and let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of the word and we thank you for the gift of uh, the opportunity to come and to receive it. And our hope this morning is that uh, we would um, be honestly and acutely aware of our responses of the inspiration of your spirit in our lives and that we would respond knowing that your response is, I love you. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of your life. We thank you for the opportunity to live into uh, union with you that we might be resurrected into new life. Jesus' name, amen.